Hello everyone, this is Rhiannon Roseland coming back to you with the Lunar Podcast. On today's episode, we speak to another incredible woman. Dana Levinson is a Canadian journalist, a reporter, and a television anchor. She was part of the CTV Toronto news team for almost two decades, reporting across a whole spectrum of news topics from breaking news to sports and weather. Dana did transition away from the CTV Toronto news team and has now started her own show which is called On the DL and so we talk about her transition out from CTV we talk about her new show and we talk about so much more such an incredibly powerful and wise woman and leader I hope you enjoy this wonderful episode So Dana, thank you so much for joining me on the Lunar Club podcast. I have really wanted to have you on here because Lunar Club is really about this idea of spirit first conversation. So really talking from our hearts, talking from our souls. And you have your own show right now, which is the DL. So I know that you are someone who is interested in kind of getting into these deeper and more authentic conversations. And I'm excited to have you on. And so most people, when they see you, they think of you as this incredible TV personality, obviously CTV for so many years and someone who we became familiar with and seeing in our living rooms on a day-to-day basis. So can you please share a little bit about your story of transitioning out of that role? What led you to make that decision and you know what was going on for you at that time when you made that move? I'm always so happy to share a bit of my story because I I do feel that it will inspire people, particularly women, to make a change, that they do have the power within them and they can find that space eventually to make change, whatever it may be in their life, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship. Those are two huge ones, of course. So for me, this has been a very long journey. I would say probably close to a decade I've had the last year or so to really spend time thinking about some of the trauma that I've endured in my life and um, particularly in my adult life and what led me to make very difficult decisions and also decisions that probably I shouldn't have made. So all of that came together, culminated into this huge ball of of a decision which was it it was time for me to change and go on the next chapter of my journey so 20 years ago when i or more than 20 years ago when i got into the business i had these huge dreams just like everybody else when they get into entertainment and news everyone has these big dreams of where they see themselves in five years 10 years 20 years and where i ended at ctv was not where i thought i would be 20 years later. So my personal and my professional life really collided and I had to make choices to take care of my family. I went through a very, very painful, uh, chaotic, crisis-like divorce. Mm. My children were one and four at the time, so very young, but I was in a very, very bad position financially. And being a local news reporter you're at the whim of this crazy schedule. It really is 24-7, and you really don't know what you're doing from week to week. And I needed childcare, and I had to figure out what I was going to do in terms of money. And it all came together in this incredible way where my boss had said, I really need you to take on the weekend weather anchor role 
and that way you'll have a stable shift so you can mm. work Saturday and Sunday nights till midnight and then back reporting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I didn't like it. Okay. I thought I would like you be, knew right away that it wasn't it wasn't something that you wanted? I knew right away. Okay. I knew right away. I said I'm I'm being typecasted. I mean, you're putting me up as like the blonde sort of pin up on like the weather, the stereotypical weather girl on the weekend. And people would say, Well, that's a huge compliment. I'm like, great, but I want to use more of my brain. Right? I want to do more interviewing. I want to do more of the hardcore stuff. And that's not how he, at the time, my boss, saw me. Hmm. He had said it would probably be about five months, six months. I need you to do this. And he'd ask me two or three times. And by the third time, I thought, I better say yes. But in some was- way, too, this, this opportunity was coming at this time when you were not feeling very stable as a mother, right. as a woman. You needed the stability. And so this was also a decision that maybe you felt that you had to make as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I made the schedule work for me which was great. My kids were so young, they didn't even know I was at work on the weekend because I didn't have to go to work till three in the afternoon. And I would come home on my dinner break, not a word of a lie, I would travel across the 401, I had one hour, I would travel across the 401, I'd be home in 15, 20 minutes. They had already eaten, I threw them into a bath, gave them a book, a kiss, a cuddle, and I would jump back into my car. Wow. It It was brutal, but I did that for years literally years. So I really made it work, but five months turned into nine years. Mm, You know, and this is where I think your story has such resonance with so many of us because it is very, very difficult to be a working mother in a world and in a system and a society that, you know, wants you to do it all and do it with a brave face and not talk about how hard it is and not show a crack and not, you know, have a slip up. And especially in the world of TV, I mean, you've got to be on and you've got to look the part and you've got to be able to, you know, deliver. How did you manage to do that? And what price did you pay? Because there has to be a price. So what price did you pay? That's an excellent question. Wow. I've never been asked that before. Such an excellent question. That has been part of my journey this year, thinking about it when I talk about trauma. So there's always two sides to everything. So on one side of it, I was very grateful because I would constantly say, my job is saving my life because I would get up, I had to get up every day and put on a face, literally put on a face, Mm. right? Make up a face, get dressed and go and be in front of the camera. And there was a persona. And so that saved my life. I couldn't wallow. I couldn't feel victimized. I couldn't feel horrible about my life or myself. I had time to do that when I got home, but not when I was at work. So I I really feel like it saved my life. Mm. But what that did to me was I had no self-worth by the end. I couldn't even ask for a day off when I wanted it. I had no confidence. I talk about having or being an advocate. I couldn't advocate for anything at the end. I felt unworthy, very unintelligent, not good enough, constantly. And when I would say these words ever, if they would ever come out to anybody who either I worked with or I'm close to, they'd say, you obviously have gone nuts. 
like you need help because that is not the way the world experiences you. No one experiences you as someone who is not intelligent. That's how I feel. So I said to you when you said, do you want to be on my podcast? I'm like, oh my God, am I smart enough to be on your podcast? I felt so beaten down by the end of my experience there. So underutilized. I felt like I had no self-worth. None. Zero. Wow. So that's what it did for me. Well, and it's interesting too because, again, like I've felt that way almost my whole life too. And, you know, there's this interesting intersection between brains and beauty and this idea like if you are attractive and you are beautiful that that is all that you are but I wonder how you feel about that about this idea of brains and beauty and that we somehow have to choose between one what do you Mm -hmm. think of that I think that has been apparent forever I don't think that that's something new I think, I don't know if you remember, do you remember Diane Sawyer? I do, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I loved Diane Sawyer growing up. She was just it to me because I thought, wow, she's so beautiful and she is so smart. And I wanted to be just like her. Mm -hmm. I wanted to speak to everyone about everything. And that's what she did. That was my dream. I wanted to be a Canadian Diane Sawyer. And I always thought that, being blonde and the way I looked wouldn't be a deficit. But as, as time has gone on, I have felt that it really it really has been a deficit. So I, I think that there is a real presence in most industries, not just television, not just in entertainment. Whether you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, if you see a beautiful woman, the first thing you think of is her face. You think of her appearance. You don't think about where she has studied where she has had impact. Mm. What does she do with her brain? Mm-hmm. What can she do for her community? Nobody thinks that way. It's so interesting too, because in the world of, well, in this world too, there's an incredible amount of privilege that goes with beauty. And, you know, some would say that you would have never been on television if you didn't look the way that you do and present, you know, as beautiful as you are. And so it's this strange thing. And I, you know, I don't know what to make of it. Like, I don't know I don't have the answer for myself, but I'm seeing this next generation coming up. I'm just seeing even the way that they, especially some of the young women, are able to present in a way that I can tell that the looks and, you know, the beauty isn't the only thing that they revere in themselves. And I don't know where that's really coming from, but I know for me that the thing that was upheld in my household was beauty and you know I would constantly hear the women in my home commenting on other women's attractiveness or beauty or she's gorgeous on tv so it felt like that was something that I had to aspire to did you grow up what was the sentiment in your household and was it revered to be on television or on tv was beauty revered yes my mother is gorgeous absolutely gorgeous and she was she was the beautiful mom Mm. she was that like really pretty mom growing up people used to think she looked like Farrah Fawcett do you remember her oh my gosh yes she does now of course she she's almost 80 so she looks much different now but she was so she really was very gorgeous so I really I admired her 
I adored her and she was revered and mm. I had two beautiful older sisters mm. so it was a thing yeah I think beauty was a was a thing in my house that being said I may shock you when I tell you this but I had zero self-confidence zero self-confidence until I was in my 20s wow. I was overweight I had probably really bad 80s hair really bad 80s hair like the bad perm and the teeth like Tina Turner and it was like out to hear my hair and I struggled with my weight all my life all my life I always thought I wasn't pretty mm. it's almost natural that I went into a role or an industry where beauty it was all about being beautiful absolutely so ego-driven mm-hmm. so ego-driven mm-hmm. but when I had time to really dig deep and figure out what it is that I wanted it, it was not about this it was not mm-hmm. about the facade right it was more about what I could potentially give back and but my impact do you think that growing up in a household where you didn't feel beautiful and attractive but you had you know these beautiful sisters and a beautiful mother that you being on that tv was finally you saying look and I'm good enough too and look I'm beautiful enough too for sure and I think what our listeners could really learn from or probably you know look into their own lives and see where this is showing up is that these needs or these unfulfilled aspects of our inner children end up being a relentless task or or something that we go after throughout our entire lives looking to find and for me this has shown up in many ways I mean my mom you know that she was kind of in and out of my life and I never really felt seen by her and And so as an adult, I've been in this sort of hungry space of, of trying to be seen. And so I've, you know, appeared and on these larger and larger platforms and taking on more and more and more things. But as I'm slowly starting to kind of work through a lot of my own stuff, I realized that there was this need of this inner child to be seen. And so now it's like, I'm still up there on these podiums trying to be seen and validate myself to my mom in the end of the day, which is just so bizarre but really really that's the truth and it's that doesn't that make you take pause when you think about that you are a mother because that makes me take pause when I hear you say that I think about what have I done to screw up much my kids thus far yeah and can I undo it yeah I think about that all the time what have you done to screw up your kids thus far no I think I should ask them I think I've got um I don't think I have two really incredible boys Mm -hmm. and we are super super tight because Mm -hmm. it was just us for so long they have a relationship with their dad but it's not a typical divorced situation they have always spent 99.9 percent of their time with me Mm -hmm. and now they don't really see their dad that much Mm -hmm. um but they love their dad they just don't see him that much yeah say not really at all and so they've always we've always been the three of us then came the love of my life so i have Big, huge blended family now. Five kids. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And we did it really slowly. So I'm hoping I didn't screw them up. <laughs> I'm hoping I did it the right way. But I'll speak to them tonight about it. I'll say, so what have I done to screw you up so far? 
they'll tell me. Well, and and I'm sure, and I'm sure they'll, <laughs> I'm sure they'll say something. And I, it sounds like you've done absolutely everything. And I think most of us are doing absolutely everything to be the best that we that we can. I know you that do. I'm. You do. You think that people are doing the best because I, I've, I don't know. I think that we do the best that we know how to do, and sometimes that. Mm-hmm. It isn't the best, but there's usually a reason for that. And I think a big part of my healing right now has come from the forgiveness of, you know, forgiving my my parents for what they couldn't give. And as I go further on in my journey, being able to recognize, you know, things that I've had to do in my life that maybe haven't been the best, but that I, you know, had to do to deal with circumstances that I was facing. And so in the end of the day, I think we're here on this earth and in this life to to learn and to live and to hurt and to laugh and to have all of these experiences. And we all have this idea of trying to do it perfect. But in the end of the day, I think we're actually here for the imperfection and that that's where we learn that's where we learn the most. And it certainly has been that case for me, definitely. In the healing process, I guess, in the painful moments, that's where that's where the learning comes, right? That's where the change comes. That's where you have your aha moment. Right? Yeah. So that that's what happened. That's what happened for me. Well, so it was, yeah. And it's interesting because I think sometimes, and I've, I've talked to, you know, women who say that they grew up in this kind of perfect household or, you know, their parents were perfect, their childhood was perfect. But then if they were somehow, you know, not perfect or weren't able to hold up to that standard, they internalize some kind of grief or pain from that experience. So I think it's just in our human nature that we end up all kind of, experiencing in some version some kind of trauma I think it just it happens naturally my upbringing my life was not perfect at all yeah I, I had a stable home but it was not perfect yes. I had parents who I, I love and respectfully would can talk about it now but I had parents who probably should not have stayed together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They probably, there were so many times that I thought okay this now they're finally getting divorced but they didn't mm. they never did so I lived in that environment and I had an older sister who had a very severe eating disorder. She very, very severe. And I also had a dad who lived with severe mental health issues, mm-hmm. who suffered from debilitating depression when no one even knew what that was yeah. in the 80s. No one even talked about that. No one, know, we didn't know what was wrong. With yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was less than perfect. It was in suburbia, which to me felt like hell. Mm-hmm. growing up like hell mm-hmm. I could not wait to get out of I called it well it's North York but it was the Bayview and Steeles neighborhood I was like get me out of here there was a dread I felt there was a dread in that neighborhood and not just that neighborhood but in suburbia and every time I would take the subway and go downtown go to Midtown or anywhere I'd always feel like oh okay now there's like life so it's felt very heavy living in the birds. Very heavy to me. What was it like to live with a parent that was suffering from mental health? How did you did you internalize that as being something to do with you? I probably did, and haven't really worked through a lot of that yet. Um, that's one of the things that's 
in my that's definitely my bucket list this year mm-hmm. I want to work on that my dad passed away three and a half years ago from a heart condition it, was, it came on very suddenly so we never had the opportunity to sit and talk about his depression but I know that there's a genetic component to it and mm-hmm. it scares me like crazy so when I have dark days or sad days or blue days I think oh god this is it it's going to hit me now mm-hmm. now it's coming mm-hmm. and it, I'm able to get myself out of it mm-hmm. but I'm very aware that it's there and I, I'm aware that it's in me and that I, maybe I've passed it to my children and I wanted I want to make sure that I'm alive to all of it so I don't know if I internalize that but a lot of it came out when I was in university when I had moved away from home a lot came out for my dad. He was really he didn't he wasn't doing well. But later in his life he started doing much better. So I'm assuming he was medicated or he was getting help. It's nothing we ever talked you about. You didn't talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My mother wouldn't talk about it and I never talked about it with him. And your mother still won't talk about it now yeah. or no. Oh God. Yeah. Does not have the capacity. Yeah. It it's also, you know, generationally it just like you said, it was so taboo. Nobody spoke of it and so families internalized these things and it was shameful for families, which is so sad because we know that, you know, mental health is the same as a, you know, physical ailment and that mental health is fluid. Some days you could be sick, like you have a flu or a cold and other times you can be fine. And it really resonates with me. I also had a lot of mental health, you know, happening in my household. And my biggest fear growing up as a teenager was for it to happen to me. That would just be a death sentence, I thought, if something were to happen to me. And the truth is, is that I have suffered from mental health issues throughout my life. And it wasn't until I finally stopped running from the fear and actually just sat and said, you know what, it's it's okay. It's okay if you know, these things happen and that we have to just get to a point as a society where we can get real because in so many ways, I think all of us are suffering from some kind of mental health and how could we not? Our system and our society is just a bit of a mess right now. Broken. It's really, really, really broken. And so kind of transitioning into that, you know, I see you as a really important voice in this feminist movement right now. I think that you are you are building a platform where you are asking women to be themselves and you're highlighting stories that are truthful and honest and that is in and of itself breaking down barriers. So what drove you to start the DL and, and what is your hope for that project? Thank you for saying that. That's so kind. I'm beyond moved by you saying that. And I'm, I, I hope that people start to feel that as well. Um, that is my dream, that people start to feel that, that I'm trying to do something here. It was that burning desire that I've had for years about connection with people. And so I loved being a reporter because I met somebody new every day and I got to tell a different story every day. How that evolved and how I was storytelling and to what capacity, of course, changed. But I love that. And I thought, how can I do more of this? How can I bring out more information? And I, I believe that what resonates with people is conversation, not information being thrown at you through social media or through your television. 
anymore. I feel like that goes in one ear and out the other. But it's a conversation like this, and someone's listening to it, and something hits. It pulls either at your heartstrings or something you connect with somebody. And so I thought, how can I do that properly and in a way that sticks? And I thought, what I do really well is talk mm-hmm. and listen. And I love, com- I love conversations. I love to talk with people. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. And I really saw it as a show because TV is in my blood and anything visual is how I see myself. But the way the world has evolved and the way I have evolved is that naturally it's turned into a podcast. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a visual aspect to it, like what we're doing right now in a Zoom type atmosphere, but it will live as a podcast. So that's how it came to be on the DL was I thought the name was brilliant because it plays on my name yes and I love the idea that people are talking about things that they don't normally talk about the things that are on the down low mm-hmm. that people won't I I've never spoken about my father's mental health issues ever it took me years to talk about how I've felt about myself in a mm-hmm. role that was incredibly visual and high profile mm-hmm. never talked about it mm-hmm. until now so wow. there's people out there that have stories that are so compelling that will help other people live a better life yes and i think that that's exactly true and by hearing you know your story right now and again we always have this perception of people so I always remember watching you thinking yes that you are so beautiful and just that imagining how perfect your life was. I mean, that's just what people do, right? Especially we idolize people on the television and we make up this fantasy in our minds of who they are and what they're all about and what they do. And I remember when you had asked me to be on the DL and how like I was shocked. I was so shocked. I was like, are you serious right now? And so excited. So it just goes to show you what, you know, we can't judge a book by its cover that we don't know the full, you know, stories of people until we really ask them and get to know. And I think that there's something so powerful. We're moving into this time right now where I feel that magic in the air where people's truths are starting to bubble up to the surface and whether it's through the movements of me too or black lives matter or you know just things truths kind of simmering up and boiling over and spilling out the pot and i think that that is what we need right now we need things to boil over and spill out the pot so that we can actually make a new stew because Mm -hmm. this one is tasting a little you know crotchety at this point I think for sure definitely what would your message be right now to women who of course many have been impacted by this pandemic and may have young children at home and you know similar to what you were in at one time when you just were doing it all and trying to figure it out what's your advice to women right now who are trying to get through this time and do it all and are not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel I have to start every day breathing. I would wake up and, and think to myself, I'm not going to be able to get through this day. But when I would literally start inhaling and exhaling, there is something masterful about breathing and centering yourself. So start there, start breathing, and then start visualizing. Mm-hmm. 
Now, please tell us about that because you are a visualizer and this has been a technique that you've been using for a long time. So tell us your process. Like, what does that look like for you? How do you use that tool? Okay, so I visualize, I manifest what I want. And whether it takes a year or 10, it will happen for everyone if you are able to visualize what it is see where you want yourself to be and how you want yourself to be you could start with how you want to look if that's what we're talking about some women are in that space where you physically want to show up how you want to be personally and professionally you can do that by seeing it so usually it was always in a time where it was quiet so my quiet time is always in my room usually when I'm falling asleep but what I started to do was wake up earlier than my house I would set my alarm about 20 minutes earlier than I was supposed to set my alarm Mm -hmm. and I would make some coffee in the morning I'd go down earlier and I would sit and I would close my eyes and I would visualize where I wanted to be so I would say that I dreamed up Kevin my husband I literally dreamed him up which is crazy because he is what I dreamed. Wow. Like I dream of him all the time. And now I'm married to him. How is, did you meet him? How, what was that whole love story? How did it happen? It, it, it seems when I say I dreamed him. So Kevin and I knew each other when I was three and he was six. What? I didn't know this. Oh, my goodness. So our parents were friends when we were kids. And he, interestingly enough, was my first crush. Oh my now, he goodness. was older than I am. He's my sister's age. So he didn't really look at me or even have anything to do with me. I played with his younger sister, but we were very young. And for years, our families were friends. And then I didn't see him post, I guess, I must have been about 13 or 14. And I didn't see him again until my early 20s, where I bumped into him. And he just like looked over my shoulder. And he was always this very, very handsome, tall, really smart, really funny guy. Had nothing, wanted to have nothing to do with me. I'm like, okay. Did he really like, not? Or you just are making that up in your mind? I can't imagine any man not wanting to have anything to do with you. He didn't even remember the encounter. He didn't even remember the encounter. I remember exactly where I was standing. I remember exactly where I was. I was like, oh, when oh I saw goodness. him. And then fast forward, oh gosh, like 15 years later, I bumped into him again and he started talking to me. And when I realized who he was, when he said his name, I was shocked. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, he, he tells the story better than I do. I said, oh my God, you got so old. Oh, because you were like a three-year-old. Yes. Right. Right. Anyways, I didn't recognize him because he was much older. But as soon as I looked into his eyes, I was like, oh, okay. Yes, I know who you are. And it just started from there. We worked very, very hard to be together. We worked very hard. We both were exiting marriages, relationships with, we had numerous children between us. And it was instant, like, instant like as if it was written when we were three and six years old so kevin always says this is his favorite line is that if we had not been together like 
10 years ago or right now, we would, we would be somewhere in our life. We were meant mm-hmm. to be together. Mm-hmm. So we knew that as we were going through our journey as a couple and wanting to, to blend our families, like all of our family, not just our children, our family and all of our friends, that it was a very slow process because we just knew at the end of the day we were going to be together forever. Right. So it's really... We did a lot of work to make sure that we did it properly. I mean, blending a family is an incredibly challenging thing to do. And especially, it's not just about the two of you. It's obviously about, you know, the children. And were the children always accepting of of both of you on both sides? Or did you have any challenges? Yeah, of course there were challenges. There's always going to be challenges. And I think there'll be challenges forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not challenges that we can't work on or deal with it's mm-hmm. not it's not the kind of challenges where there has never been a time where one of us have felt rejected by our children either of our children our, our kids don't feel have never felt rejected with each other mm-hmm. they love each other mm-hmm. they respect each other I think we're very lucky in that Kevin's children's mom has a great space so they have a, they have a lot of space in her home so it's when they were in my home was very tight, so yes. they, but they were very little. They were yeah. very little. When that now we're talking about 21, 19, 17, 16, and 13. Wow. They were very, very young. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. So we've had, yeah, of course we've had challenges, but nothing like, you know, it, there's no step monster stories. There's mm-hmm. none of that. Yeah. It's not like you're lucky. You're really I lucky am. because I hear stories all the time and it's, yeah, I, I, I know how challenging it is. So I have a question. This is like a personal thing that I want to know from you. Posted nothing. We haven't been personal yet. I mean, it's very <laughs> personal, but this is wow. something that I'm just trying to kind of work through myself. And so I want to get your perspective. So you exited a marriage you, you know, indicated that that marriage was not working, that it was not a, a good situation for you. You know, now you're remarried and with Kevin. And I wonder, when you made that transition in relationship, how did you not bring the baggage of that first relationship and those dynamics into the new one? Because for myself, and I've also gone through a divorce and, you know, entered into another relationship. And what I really found was that after a few years, some of the same challenges presented again. And this time there was no way I could just put it on the partner. I had to really start to look at myself and see like what little things I was packing there that I was, you know, needing to unpack or bring. So I'd love to hear your experience of that and, and what you learned through that. I will challenge you to take a look at yourself when that happens again and think about your childhood mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what is it about the way you were raised or your experiences in childhood that you haven't worked on that you were trying to work on through your first marriage mm-hmm. and that's not what we do mm-hmm. but we all do it mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. all do it we take everything that we've had our whole lives and we put it on to that relationship once we're married. Yeah. And I don't know anybody who hasn't done that. And we it's hope that, that they're going to solve it. Right. So we transfer all of it onto that and bless the people who can get through it. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, good for them. That's great. I could not. I put everything into that 
that being said, it was it was a, an abusive relationship, and it was emotionally just it was terrible, and it destroyed me. So I needed to get out of it. But I think when you know that you are taking some of what you did in the first go around into the second, you're already on the right track. Mm. So you already are aware that it's present, that whatever you were doing then, you're doing it again now, and you're taking responsibility for it, Mm -hmm. so you can change it. I didn't want anything in my second relationship, I call it my next chance in life, to resemble anything from my first marriage. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And nothing does. And so, but how did you do that? Did did you do therapy? Did you, like, did you do certain work in between? Like, how... How did you manage that? I was in psychotherapy for years, years mm-hmm. and years and years and years and years. And part of it is finding a partner that you can say it. So I can actually say those words to Kevin. So instead of it coming out and boiling over, I'll actually just say the words. Mm-hmm. I'll have to say, you know what, like, that really makes me physically ill. Mm-hmm. When you do that. I feel physically ill. Mm-hmm. And instead of having a screaming match or getting super upset... I'll just say whatever makes me upset. And he listens. I think that that's really powerful. And thank you for sharing that you have been doing that personal work through therapy. Because I think that, again, this is another one of those things where not so much today, but it was very taboo for people to talk about those things or people to talk about getting, you know, support and help. But I just definitely believe that we need this. We need this kind of work and we need to be able to yeah, be mindful and to be able to look at our own consciousness and the way that we think and be able to dissect those things in order to be better. I think that that's great. I got some really good advice from a therapist that I was working with many years ago. He actually said to me, and it works, he said, before you say something to Kevin and ruin everything, before you do that, try screaming in the mirror Mm. or while you're driving. Have a conversation with yourself. Mm. And lately I have found myself doing this because Lord knows he does not deserve it. Yes. And he doesn't need it right now. He's very stressed with work as well. And so I have found myself talking to myself in my washroom, sometimes in the car, and I feel so much better. Yeah, so maybe try that. That is a really, really, I think, interesting piece of advice, too, because I think, yeah, well, because it's true, though, when it's all in your head all of the time, it feels so big and it can be so confusing. And if you have no outlet, you can end up making these kind of snap, you know, you, know, you just snap and it comes out in all the wrong way. Let's talk about that a little bit, because Kevin is a doctor and I know he's been on the front lines of this pandemic right now and you've been very open on you know your platform and talking about what that feels like for you and you've had him on a few times and interviewing him how have you been able to manage and cope with that as the family and and what has that done so Kevin is an emergency room physician and he also at the beginning he was working in one of the COVID clinics as one of the lead physicians, uh, diagnosing and also caring for COVID patients. Wow. So at the beginning when this started, when no one knew much about anything, it was horrible. And my heart was in my throat every time he walked out the door. I'm sure. And he was working a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And it was very difficult. But I felt like, 
I needed to be as authentic as possible for everybody, not just my family, for people who were relying on my platform for information. A lot of people know that my husband is an emergency room doctor, so I thought I have to do something. I have to bring information to people about this because there was so much misinformation at the beginning. There still is a lot of misinformation, by the way, but there really was so much misinformation. So I had asked Kevin to join me on our couch a couple of times and talk about his experience. Very cathartic for me because, as I said, when I chat, I feel better. Yes. And I felt like I was doing my part by, by doing that. He, on the other hand, is not very comfortable in front of a camera, whether it's an iPhone or a large camera. He is much better when the camera's off. I said I'm going to put it on and he won't even know it's on because our conversations are, are incredible. But he won't share that part of him anymore. He really felt uncomfortable. So we tried to do it that way. Being his wife and watching him go through this was devastating mm. because he, for the first time in his career, did not know what to expect. I mean, he lived through SARS and I lived through SARS as a reporter. We weren't together at that time. It was a long time ago, but we both experienced SARS, which was bananas. Mm-hmm. But this seemed so much bigger. This seemed bigger than us. Like we couldn't wrap our heads around what was going to happen. But as the weeks went on and months went on, we realized that it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a death sentence. And so at this point right now, with all that's happened, with all the changes that have occurred, what's the one thing that you think you've taken away from this time? What's the one lesson that this pandemic has really left you with? I feel that if not before this time, now would be the time to like yourself. Now's Mm. the time. And if you don't, you can take the time now to figure out what it is you don't like about yourself Mm. and you can change it. Wow, that's so powerful. Thank you, Dana. You can can visualize it, visualize what you want. You can visualize it. And I do believe in the power of visualization. I've been also doing that for my whole life and I just... I think it absolutely, yeah. And it's funny, I mean, I, I'm i here at the office today with my right-hand gal, and we were sitting and doing that very thing. We just said, let's just tell each other, even if we can't figure out exactly what we want to do with the business right now in terms of the pivot, you know, what do you want to feel like or what does it look like to you? And What does it look like to you? I wanted to ask you that. Sorry for turning the tables. Oh, my goodness. What does it look like to you? You know, to me right now, and again, I don't know the exact pathway, but what it looks like to me is this fusion of art and business. It looks like a lot of women around us. And there is always a lot of women around over here, but a lot more. It looks like seeing those that haven't been centered or empowered being empowered. And it just... To me, it feels like we're on some kind of a tour as a band, but there's a bunch of policymakers and thinkers and artists and bankers all kind of coming together to create what is a new system. And so I just see a way cooler revolution than the time of the 60s. I see something that's just really coming that's transformative and I can feel it in the air. And, you know, Morgan, who is our VP here, you know, she described just her feeling right down to, you know, how the length of her hair and, and, you know, the power that would be inside of her heart. And 
although we don't know exactly the steps to take to get there, it's important to hold that vision and to, you know, place that vision in your heart and to keep revisiting it because slowly but surely you start to see it formulate and come together and, and make that reality. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. I think it's such a great piece of advice that you gave to everyone to do that it really really is yes that's amazing well thank you so much for sitting down and thank you for being so candid because we really did go to a lot of places and I appreciate you you know going that deep and talking about your family and some of these private things I think it's it's transformative to hear people who are powerful and that we have always looked up to and I know that so many of us we've looked up to you and we continue to look up to you and to hear you in all of your truth it just it makes me feel like there's room for me to be me too so thank you sure is yeah thank you so much thank you so much thank you such a joy. And we will link below to everyone who's listening where they can catch the DL, which is now pivoting a bit into a podcast from its original show. But we will link all of those. Yes, sorry, on the DL. Yes, we will put that there in the show notes as well. So thank you so much, Dana.